Glad you're here this morning. Glad you figured out the time change. Uh, as a parent, uh, this is the time change I look forward to. The hope is that my kids will sleep an hour later. Unfortunately, a couple of my younger kids did not get the memo, and they woke up an hour earlier. That should be against the law. I don't know what their deal was. Last week was a big deal. I know that some of you weren't obviously here last week, but we had our men's retreat last weekend, and the title of our retreat was Men Don't Retreat. We stayed here in Evanston, and also we, we covered four areas of a life where we don't want to retreat. We don't want to retreat from personal holiness, but pursue a life of righteousness following the Lord. We don't want to retreat from relationship responsibilities, but deal with the challenges we need to face and face them head on. We don't want to retreat from vocational or schooling excellence. We don't want to phone it in. We want to pursue our vocations in our school with excellence. And we don't want to retreat from gospel risks. We want to take risks and share the gospel as the gospel spurs us on to greater risk. And our forerunner is Jesus Christ, who did not retreat from the cross, but bore the wrath of God all the way in his death and his resurrection so that we could be reconciled to him. And in union with Christ and filled with the Spirit, we can be men and women who do not retreat but move forward and grow and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a great weekend. And the message I have this morning is is just appropriate follow-up to last weekend. I want to start with a warning. I'll put the warning up for you. Here's the warning. Those who stop retreating and start moving forward in faith will face pushback. Those who stop retreating and start moving forward in faith will face pushback. That's the way it works. You stop defaulting and falling back to your old patterns of sin. You actually want to live a life of holiness and move forward. You're going to face some resistance. For the last six months, I have found myself kind of steeped in discouragement. There's been a kind of cloud hanging over me for a variety of reasons. And I find myself, rather than try to push out of it with gratefulness and thankfulness, I keep reverting back to discouragement. At the retreat on Friday night, I had the opportunity to share my testimony, how God brought me out of a a life of sexual morality, gave me victory and purity during my college years and and following. And I was kind of on this uh, very, very encouraged from that testimony. But about, I told the guys the story, by the way, Uh, about an hour and a half after my testimony, the men went to Robert Crown Center here in Evanston and they decided to play broomball. Just for the record, Curse it, broom ball. That's what they were playing. And while I was there, I was telling the guys in the lobby, I said, hey, you guys have fun playing broom ball. I'm not playing broom ball. I played years ago with the youth, and I got injured. It's, it's just stupid to play broom ball. You're just going to get hurt. So I get out there, and I'm watching them, and one of the guys on our staff, one of the interns, is like, Pastor Jason, we need one more person. Come on, come on, come on, our team. And I, I don't want to call that guy out. I'll, just, I'll tell you his initials. It was Ryan Silhavy. <laughs> so he pressured me into playing broomball. So I get out there and I'm like, I'm not going to play broomball. I'm just going to mind my own business. I'm just going to stand in the corner, which I did. And I just thought, I got to be a man here. You know, I got to step up a little bit. So I went for the ball with the stick. I'm going forward. And this, and this other guy just collides into me. Now, when the smash happened, I'm going to tell you something. 
smash my glasses in my face and cut my face. My nose is bleeding inside, okay? That's fine. But when it happened, I never had this happen before in my life. You football players, maybe I felt and heard of my skull massive cracking in my neck. And I thought to myself, I just broke my neck. That broom ball. The game's over. I don't talk to anybody. I walk off the ice, get in my car, and I drive to the ER by myself. I tell no one. So I'm at the ER, sitting in there, waiting on the doctor, and I have a neck brace on. And I'm thinking, I just broke my neck. And I, I am discouraged. The cloud is start coming back again. I thought I was just so excited about what God was doing. I was feeling positive again. And now here I'm with neck brace, feeling discouraged. And, and thankfully, after all the x-rays, I was just being a drama king. And it wasn't broken and just strained. But I just thought, wow, when we start to move out of our retreating ways, there's going to be pushback. Some of you guys know. Last weekend, you said, you know what? I am done with porn, right? Done with sexual morality. My guess is the temptations this week were the greatest you've ever faced. Some of you, you said, I'm going to start dealing with that relationship I need to deal with. And when you started dealing with it, it didn't go so well. Others thought, you know, this is the week I'm not going to be lazy at school. I'm actually going to study. It was hard. Maybe the hardest week you had. And maybe you actually tried to share your faith and it didn't go so well. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we're not going to retreat anymore. We're actually going to obey and follow the Lord. And yet, when we do, what are we supposed to do when we get pushback? When things are hard, it's suffering. But here is the option you're not going to take. You're not going to go back to your retreating ways. No, we all can agree with that. No more retreating. No more going back to our life of sin. So if retreating is not an option, what are we supposed to do? Today's message is crucial as a follow-up to last Sunday and to the retreat last weekend because with good intentions, you can be ready to move forward and walk with the Lord, but you're not quite sure how to deal with the resistance. So I want to state my thesis and my follow-up here to the retreat. You might not understand what I'm about to say, but by the time we're done, you will totally get it. So here is my thesis. Let me put it up for you. Don't force the hand of God, but wait under his sovereign control. Don't force the hand of God, but wait under his sovereign control. When you feel uh, some pressure in your life, some difficulties, the temptation is going to be to retreat, but the other temptation is going to be to hurry this thing up and fix this and grab a hold of it and force it. I created this very complicated diagram to show you what I'm talking about. Let's put this diagram up, all right? Ready? Life pressure responses. It's very simple. When you feel pressure in life, I think you're going to do one of three things. You're going to retreat into sin. You're going to try to force the hand of God. Or you're just going to wait and wait in faith. That middle part, that middle road of waiting, that is very, very difficult. Especially for people who like to be in control. Anybody? Yeah. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, 1 Samuel 13. And if those of you who are new this morning, I'll try to catch you up a little bit. Maybe you've studied 1 Samuel before. Maybe you don't even know where it's at in the Bible. That's okay. Look at the table of contents. It's in there somewhere. 1 Samuel 13. We're going to the book of 1 Samuel. We left off three weeks ago in chapter 12. 
It was hopeful, a little hopeful expectation. As Israel, along with their new spirit-filled king, is actually getting some traction. They're leaving their retreating ways behind. They're moving forward. They're clinging to the Lord. And then we show up in chapter 13, the chapter that many of us are not familiar with. Maybe we've never even thought about it before. But it's amazing how God has ordained chapter 13 to come right after our retreat. The hopefulness of Israel is about to be dashed as this new king rather than waiting on God, gets impulsive here, and he tries to force the hand of God. And the results are disastrous. So let's go ahead and pick it up. 1 Samuel 13, look at verse 1. Now, if you weren't reading it and just listening to me read this verse, you would think I have some issues with reading. Here we go. In fact, don't even read it. Just listen to me. Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned and two years over Israel. What? What is going on there? You see, at the beginning of the king of reigns, there's always be a list of the years they reign and their age, but somehow there is a textual difficulties where the numbers seem to be left out. Many scholars don't have a clue what the solution is. They're just flat out missing here. Uh, one scholar uh, noted that it's very appropriate for Saul's uh, reign and the numbers to be defective, just as defective as Saul himself. That was interesting. Verse 2. So Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Jonathan, the son of Saul, And he was the one who led the Israelites to this great victory. Yet Saul gets the credit for it. Something is really off here. And I I wish I could preach it this week. I'm going to preach it next week. Jonathan is everything that Saul should have been. And here's a great example here of rather than Jonathan getting the credit, Saul takes the credit. I just want to preach on that, but I'm going to leave it alone because we have a greater problem. This week, the problem is the Philistines are stirred up. It's like Jonathan has this victory over the Philistines. It's like he took a stick and he just whacked the beehive. And now the Philistines are all buzzing. They're all buzzing. They're ready to, to take out the Israelites. Look at verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. It's pretty imposing. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The bees are buzzing. Philistines are attacking. They're surrounding Israel. And what's going to happen? Israel, the men in Israel, many of them, ready for this? They start to retreat. And they go into hiding. Look at it. They should have went to the retreat. Look at verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. 
And some Hebrews crossed the ford of the Jordan to the land of Gad, Gilead. They are literally retreating. Many of them are hiding themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. Some of them crossed in the Jordan and some bailed out of the area. They are literally retreating. What about their king? Well, it's as if King Saul went to our retreat. He knows that a man of God is not to retreat. Look what it says about King Saul. Verse 7, very end of it. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. That's, that's a score right there. Good job, Saul. He did not retreat. Philistines are buzzing all around him. He doesn't bail. He stands firm. The people that are with him are trembling. They're scared to death. And it's okay when the pressure's on. It's okay to feel scared, right? But Saul is not bailing. He is not retreating. Now, the issue is, if the Philistines are buzzing, Saul's not retreating, what are you going to do? I mean, the pressure's on, right? You've got to do something. What are you going to do, Saul? Well, let's see what he does. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Stop there. What is that? Philistines are surrounding him. He's waiting seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. This is going to make us reflect to a previous verse. I'll put it up for you. 1 Samuel 10.8. A little back history. This is what Samuel said to Saul. He said, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Now pay attention here. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. The idea here is that once the Philistines are engaged, and they are engaged right now, Saul is in Gilgal, he was to wait seven days for Samuel. Once Samuel comes, Samuel's going to make the appropriate sacrifice, and then Samuel is going to instruct him, give him his battle instructions from the Lord. Both the sacrifice and the instruction were to be done by Samuel, who is both a priest, the sacrifice, and a prophet, speak the word of God. But the situation is becoming bleaker and bleaker day by day. Look at verse 8. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Saul's still there. Samuel's not showing up. Saul's the troops, many of them are just bailing. They're retreating. They're leaving him. Day one, where's Samuel? He's not here. Philistines are buzzing. People are bailing. Day two, where's Samuel? Philistines are buzzing. People are bailing. Day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven. Where's Samuel? I don't see him. He's not here. Philistines are buzzing. I'm pretty much losing my whole army. I'm still here as the king. What am I supposed to do? You ready? This is what you waited for all morning. Saul is going to try and force the hand of God. He's going to try to make something happen. Look at verse 9. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. 
Saul is making a sacrifice that is not his to make. He impulsively panics, rushes ahead, pushes through the sacrifice. Now, there's nothing sinful about a king making a sacrifice. King David's going to do it after Saul. King Solomon will do it in the future. So there's nothing sinful about making the sacrifice per se. Now, what's sinful here is that Saul thinks he can make the sacrifice and not hear from God. He almost thinks, you know what, God, I'm going to do my sacrifice thing, and you do your victory thing. The Philistines are buzzing. All the you know, my people are retreating. So I'm going to pull off this sacrifice. I'm going to force your hand, and you get going. I've done my sacrifice thing. Now, God, your turn. Do your victory thing. He's attempting to force the hand of God. I've done this before. You do too. You may not think like that, but you know there are situations in your life where you grab control and you try to ram it through. You try to force it through. Over the years, I have seen guys, let me just talk to the men in here. I've seen guys clue in that they need to lead their wives spiritually. And I get so excited when I see guys and there's a light that goes off. They're like, yeah, i got to lead my wife. And they start moving toward their wife. And they're like, honey, I need to lead you in prayer. I need to lead you in the word. And so they start moving toward their wives and they start to spiritually lead their wives. And their wives are slow to respond. Their wives are hesitant because they have, they don't trust the guy. They've seen him break his um, promises over the years, and now he's trying to spiritually lead them, and and they're very hesitant to respond. And, And this is what guys do. Guys get mad. Don't we, guys? We get mad. We get angry. You're like, woman, I'm just trying to lead you spiritually. What's your deal? And guys get mad. And this is what happens. And, and, and I'm not busting any confidences of anybody here because it's happened several times since I've been in the ministry. What happens is that guys want to fix their wives. And so they come to see me as if I can fix their wives. But they come to see me and they tell me, and I know what they're going to say because I know I've, I've, if you said this to me, I'm, I'm, I'm not just busted on you, right? But I am a little bit. So the guys come to see me and they're like, man, I'm, I'm trying to leave my wife. I'm trying to pray with her. She's just not into it. She, 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 she kind of does it, but she doesn't really want to do it. And I know what they're about to say. I know, I know what's coming. And then they finally say what I know they're going to say. They say this, I'm not even sure she's a believer. You ever said that to your wife? <laughs> I'm not even sure she's a believer. And then I want to say this. Okay, let me get this straight. You've been looking at porn for 10 years. You finally decide to move toward your wife, and she is slow to respond and hesitant. And now you wonder if she's a believer. Are you serious? It's as if when we decide to follow the Lord, we want everybody to jump on board, be ready to roll. And if it doesn't work out, we're going to be angry. And we're going to try to ram it through, and we're going to try to force the hand of God rather than waiting patiently. And waiting for others to come along, we're like, no, I'm going to pull this one off. I'm going to make this one happen. And if it doesn't, I'm going to get angry about it. In fact, I'm going to go get my pastor to straighten out my wife. That does not work too well, just for the record. Sometimes we need to wait patiently 
under the sovereignty of God. Saul was supposed to sit there and wait because Samuel did show up. Look at verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Maybe this is the tail end of the seventh day or sometime later, Samuel shows up. If he would just have waited a little bit longer, all right? So look at this interaction between the two of them. This is great. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. I love this. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Don't you love that? Well, I have no other options. I forced myself to do it. It's like blame shifting. Philistines are buzzing. Troops are retreating. Samuel, where were you, man? So I just took myself and I forced myself to pull off the sacrifice. He's not even accepting any blame for what he has done. And, and you, you know that pattern in your own life. You, you see it, okay, right? Life pressure, right? That's the first thing that happens, life pressure. It's like, it's like, a, like a one, two, three step. So you feel the life pressure, you feel panic, and you force the hand of God. Something comes your way. You panic. Rather than waiting on God, you want to ram it through. Let's say, and, and I was picking on the men earlier, so now I want, to pick on, uh, I want to pick on college seniors. Any college seniors in here? Okay, I want to pick on you. Let's say you're lonely and you really want to, you just want to date or you want to get married. And in fact, the closer you get to graduation, maybe you're getting a little panicky. I don't want to see a show of hands. But you know who you are. I remember when I was in college uh, in Arkansas, I was about to graduate, and I thought, man, I, I was hoping to be married by the end of my undergrad. Because in Arkansas, everybody gets married like at 18. And so I was like, <laughs> so I was there, and I'm like, man, I, I need to get married. And I was starting to get panicky. And I've noticed throughout the years that when people college or not get panicky about their loneliness, they tend to make some poor choices. And I have seen people go out and date people they shouldn't be dating and many times end up marrying people who don't know the Lord. And their rationale goes like this. You ready for the rationale? I'm going to give it to you. They're like this. God wants me happy. So surely if I marry this person God will convert them because he wants me happy. So I'm going to force the hand of God. I'm going to do some missionary dating here. I'm going to marry this person, and then God's going to save them. That's forcing the hand of God. Rather than waiting, and sometimes I understand the loneliness can be pretty deep, rather than waiting on his timing and on his sovereign hand to control you want to ram it through. And the consequences can be very, very devastating. I mean, look at the consequences here. Look at the consequences that, that Saul faced. Look at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, 
with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. (laughs) Saul was going to have this dynasty, this lineage. Uh, Jonathan was going to be the next king. But no, we're going to have none of that. Because of Saul's disobedience, boom, it's cut off. Saul can reign a little bit longer, but Jonathan's not going to be king. In fact, there's going to be no dynasty. There's going to be no lineage of kings coming from Saul because of his disobedience. Finish it up in verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The next king's not even going to be from Saul. It's going to be King David, a man after God's own heart. And Saul's kingdom shall not continue because he did not keep the word of the Lord. Now, maybe you think that's pretty excessive, all right? Come on. He just made a little sacrifice. It's no big deal. That's pretty excessive for Samuel to come, spoke the word of the Lord, and said, all right, dude, you're done. No more dynasty from you. No kings will come from you. Does that seem excessive? But we have been looking at Saul for several weeks now, and he still does not grasp the concept that though he is king, he is not king. The king is supposed to be God, and he is an earthly king in submission to the true king, and he is failing to acknowledge that time and time and time again. He thinks he's the ultimate authority, but he is not. And God's like, that's it. You're done. Now, as we preach through 1 Samuel, we're going to see, you know, just like this crown right here, kind of tattered and torn, we're going to see a fractured kingdom. Now, we're going to see kings that fail. But they ultimately lead up to the ultimate king, King Jesus. And as we go through 1 Samuel, we want to continue to land on King Jesus. Because David's coming next. And David's going to be a great king. But if you know anything about David, he's, he's messed up as well. He is sinful. But when King Jesus shows up on the scene, one thing I want you to notice about King Jesus, he does not retreat, and he does not try to force the hand of the Father. Think about Jesus in the desert, being tempted by Satan. He does not retreat and give in to the temptations, nor does he try to force the hand of the Father. Remember the temptation Satan gave him? Go ahead and jump off the temple mount. The Father will rescue you. Jesus didn't force the hand of the Father. Think about Jesus in the garden. Lord, is there another way? Jesus did not retreat from the cross, nor did he say, no, no, Father, seriously, I'm not going to go to the cross. There must be another way. He's not trying to force the Father's hand. He went to the cross, and through his life and death and resurrection, because he did not retreat nor force the hand of God, we can be saved through repentance and faith in Jesus. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God comes in you and enables you, under pressure, under suffering, not to retreat, nor to attempt to force the hand of God. Let me show you once again this this graph, my pressure graph. I want you to see it again. So life pressure responses. When it hits upon you, what do you do? Do you fall off on the edge where you retreat back into sin? Or do you try to force the hand of God? Most of you, especially after last weekend, I don't think that you want to go back to your life of sin. But most of you, if you're like me, are a control freak. 
you likes to fix things. And when things are not working for you, you want to fix it and you want to make it right. But where we need to be is in the middle where you're patiently waiting and trusting in the sovereign control of God. Let me give you a verse while you wait. It's a famous one. You've heard it before. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Remember that verse? You got that? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And in your understanding where you're trying to force the hand of God, get rid of that. And the verse continues on later on. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do you actually believe that? When you're in suffering and pressures and difficulties and loneliness, you're not going to go back to sin. But do you try to force God's hand? God, I'm going to, you've got to come through for me. I've got to make something happen. When what you need to do is probably the thing you hate the most. You need to wait. How many of you enjoy waiting? And yet, that's where we have to be. Many times in our life are spent waiting. But for all you doers out there, I know there's a lot of doers in here. Thinking, no, man, pastor, I just can't wait. I got to do something. It's too much pressure. It's too hard. I got to do something. Right, I'm going to give you something to do. You ready? You want to do something? I'm going to give you something to do. It, it's this. Under life's pressures, rather than retreating, rather than force the hand of God, here's what you can do. As you wait in faith, you can pray. And you're like, no, man, I really want to do something. Yeah, exactly. You can pray. You will find that your times of waiting can be some of the deepest times of prayer in your life. And if you would spend more time praying and less time anxious about your future or anxious about getting out of your situation, more time talking to God, you may find that in your waiting, your communion with the Father is sweet. Pastor, I like Eugene Peterson. He puts it like this. This is, this is gold quote right here. He says, waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. That is good. Waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. As you feel that pressure, you don't want to go back to sin. How about you just wait? You wait, you hold on. Maybe it's just going to be a little bit longer and God's going to come through. Don't go back into sin. Don't try to force the hand of God. Stay in this in-between spot of faith, this life of prayer. We're going to do two things in closing here. In a bit, we're going to have the elders and their wives on the sides. Maybe you need someone to pray for you. You feel that pressure. You feel the temptation to make something happen. You feel the temptation to go back into sin. You just need someone to pray for you. We'll be available to pray for you. But we also wanted to create some space in our service because I know some of you have been cranking this week, uh, work, at school, kids, you're busy. And if you're honest, you really haven't had much time this week to pray. In fact, maybe some of you have had no time this week to pray. We want to give you some space to pray, to talk to the Lord about these life pressures. Talk to him how you want to trust in him and not lean on your own understanding. 
And as we pray, we're going to uh, sing a song about waiting on the Lord. Maybe you don't even know what to pray. You can just pray the words of this song. So let's go ahead, I guess, and just settle our hearts and go to the Lord in this quiet place of a time of prayer and trust and waiting. Let's pray.